1: And welcome back to part two. I'm sitting here today with Joseph Farrell. Yep. And we're going through yeah, basically his two books called Secrets of the Unified Field and Philosopher's Stone.
0: Ah, uh-huh. Do you
1: think, uh, yeah. I'll do my (laughs) best. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Both of them need uh, several shows. But uh, I think from uh, The Secrets of the Unified Field, I think uh, Mm -hmm. especially part one is the most relevant. Mm -hmm. Because we break this up uh, in the first part. We discuss the science of it all to make people understand how these things work. And in the second part now, I'm thinking we can go a little there and Um. tie in more the history behind it. Okay. Yeah, but uh, do you think that's a viable way to approach it?
0: Sure. What? It's your show. Any way you want to approach it, it's <laughs> <Okay>. your <laughs> it's your deal. It has to be <laughs>
1: durable, though. But yeah, uh, yeah it's we'll, doable. Okay, we we'll try that. Yeah. <clears throat> so. Anyway, so uh-huh. like I said, the books I'm having in front of me today is The Secrets of the Unified Field and The Philosopher's Stone. Two very interesting books for people who are into not just history, but science, as we've touched right. upon. By the way, in two days from now, I'm going to talk with Walt Thornhill of the Electrical Universe mm-hmm. uh, Thunderbolt uh, crowd. Um, do they touch this unified field thing do they think that they have solved it in their paradigm
0: well that I don't know I don't know that much about their their scientific conceptualization but from what I do know of it I do think that they are on to a much more to my mind a much more workable cosmology because in a certain sense it's really coming out of the work of, of the Swedish physicist Hannes Alfvén. Uh, he was a Nobel Prize winning physicist incidentally. Um, very, very important man that, that basically came up with the plasma cosmology uh, model that I think is much more satisfying in, in many respects. So I think that aspect of it is is good. My, my principal objection to the electric universe people, is their tendency to view everything as as a form of catastrophism.
1: Yeah, more into historic implications.
0: Right. Yeah. And that that's my principal problem with it because you know I, I view those cosmic war texts of ancient texts as as being not metaphor but real. Mm. Uh, and Alan Allford. I mean, I mean, it isn't necessarily either or here. Well it may not be I don't think it necessarily has to be but my mm. impression is from most of the people that I have interacted with that hold to that view that they tend to the catastrophism so
1: yeah but I'm I'm thinking in reality that it may be a, a both and a situation Yeah
0: I th- I think that's much more plausible yeah absolutely
1: Because, I mean, you touched about it in part one, that anything can be turned into energy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the megalithic cultures obviously had some sort of technology when they were Mm -hmm. dealing with these enormous stone structures. But it was, like Gordon White argues, it was a stone-based technology. They used sound mm -hmm. and stone.
0: Mm-hmm. I, if you look at my Giza Death Star weapons hypothesis, in reality, what you're looking at is a weaponization of electrical universe theory. So, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. So uh, now, who knows what the future brings? Uh, we touched right. that at the end of part one. The, you said that science is moving slowly back to the beginning, but here's the thing: they have to because. Mm-hmm. They have no choice if they want to, because hard science, I mean, soft science, yes, that can be hijacked. It is hijacked, and it's uh, yeah. suffering from ideology and, and dogmatism yeah. and whatnot. It's become like uh, Catholicism in, in the medieval ages. But mm-hmm. when it comes to hard science, they have no choice. They're forced gradually. And, th- mm-hmm. you know, we touched it in part one, before World War 2 I'd say all of the stuff we talked about in part one was conceptualized. It was realities before World War Two. People don't get mm-hmm. that. People think they mm-hmm. were Retards back then, but no, oh, no, no, no. It was much more. I would say science was more a uh, free market in in its true meaning. It was like it was an open system. Yeah, it, it was science was an open yeah, system back then.
0: It was much more. You're absolutely right. It was much more. You go back and read those debates between Einstein and Heidegger and Schrödinger and all these people, and it was really a free for all. And then after World War II, theoretical science becomes this this Priesthood of, of dogma, and, and uh, it's really it's really unfortunate because it's collapsing as we mm. speak. And there's been it's collapsing because there've been people, scientists, that have been willing to go into the fringe areas and, and investigate, and they're coming up with some very interesting stuff. Uh, you know, I mentioned Dr. William Tiller earlier, and he, his work is just breathtaking when you when you sit down and read it. Um, so you know it's there, it's happening, and sooner or later the rest of science is going to catch up. Yep,
1: I, I give a shout out to Skeptical uh, Alex Sakiris show because he's he's invited on many many uh, vanguard scientists mm-hmm. who delves into these transition zones of uh, mm-hmm. matter consciousness and. Uh, uh, he started as a, as a neutral, like, who's right here? Mm-hmm. And he was following the data, and today he's deep into ufology and everything, mm-hmm. because he, he, he realized, I cannot hold an artificial uh, neutrality here, because the data pushes, yes. gives us no choice. It gives us no yeah. choice. Yeah. Yeah. Reality is on the
0: side of the non-materialism yeah i i i'm definitely in that camp, but with the caveat like i said in in part one that we're just at pure pure immaterialism isn't gonna work, and neither there's pure <laughs> materialism <laughs> yeah we've got to we've got to figure out how these two realms feed back to each other' and, exactly. and just we're just at the beginning of this in modern scientific terms
1: yeah yeah and you say the voice of the national security state people uh-huh uh-huh it's no coincidence that before World War II, these things were were open and, and known. After World War II, nothing. Yes. yes. And that, that dovetails with the national security state. Absolutely. You, you cannot get it spelled out more clearly than that. So, And they call it conspiracy theory, huh? <laughs> Idiots. Yeah. So let's see what the war actually did. Uh, I mean, it it didn't just devastate the world, but it devastated our paradigm too. We have uh, some uh, concepts that you operate with. Uh, Mm -hmm. But let's start with the secrets of the unified field. We have this very famous so-called Philadelphia experiment. Could you give a a brief uh, account for that?
0: Well, the standard narrative of the Philadelphia's experiment is that the United States Navy, in after the American entry into the war, tasked a group of scientists to create a, ra- a kind of radar stealth, a kind of radar invisibility for American ships – and the reason given was they needed to figure out some way to get that massive invasion fleet that was going to be needed across the English Channel and not be spotted in time by, by the German radar. And the the goal, therefore, ostensibly, of the experiment was simply to create a, a kind of a radar bubble around A U.S. destroyer escort the USS Eldridge and they did this according to the most recent research by taking magnetic degaussing cables that were put on allied ships after the Germans invented magnetic mines to create a field fluctuation, a magnetic field fluctuation around the ship That for all intents and purposes made it invisible Mm. to those German magnetic minds.
1: And and let me just remind people, like uh, the implications of what we talked about in part one is that if sight is just a perception of a limited range of vibrations, which it is, then it goes to uh, show that as soon as you can manipulate vibrations below, Mm -hmm. which would be infrared below, Mm -hmm. or above, which is ultraviolet and above, Mm -hmm. then it is... Invisible, and we know today they have uh, even mainstream – I I think the military in America have these vests that – Yes. Yeah, so they they already have it today. Mm -hmm. But even back then, so go on.
0: Well, yeah, they were trying to effectively create a radar invisibility. So they put three coils on each axis, the XYZ axis of the Eldridge of these magnetic degaussing cables. Now, that's very important to understand because the magnetic degaussing cable only ran down the outside X-axis of the ship. It wrapped around the ship below the waterline. So now you're adding two other cables, one that runs under the keel and then over the superstructure of the ship, and then you're running yet another cable Around the beam of the ship, around the width of the ship So you've got three rather than just one And as a result of those rotating Please note that word (laughs) Those rotating magnetic fields in three dimensions You're creating, first of all, a torsion effect A magnetic torsion effect And the other thing is You're creating a very, uh, a plasma effect A kind of a plasma bubble around that ship now according to the standard narrative when they turned these things on the ship disappeared completely, optically it became optically invisible as well as radar invisible and according to the standard narrative when the field was turned off some of the crew that were on the ship were embedded in bulkheads Jeez. and so on and so forth yeah that's they the, got
1: more than they bargained for they but, got
0: a lot more than they bargained for
1: <laughs> yeah, so that means that it everything within that field got it, it went into the substance of everything there the energy yeah, it, the matter everything was yeah. twisted.
0: Yeah, it did something according to the standard narrative. Mm. And what I tried to do in the book, Al, was go back and really dig into some serious scientific research on the Philadelphia experiment. And I discovered some very interesting things, Um, not the least of which was the presence of Arnold Sommerfeld. In the in the mix now, Sommerfeld was a colleague of Albert Einstein, and his specialty was was magnetic resonance. Hmm. And it was Sommerfeld who speculated that you could use magnetism to change the incidence, the angle of incidence of incoming electromagnetic waves, and that, of course, is the conceptual birth of, of the Philadelphia experiment. And I suspect that. There is truth to the narrative simply because you've got these three degaussing cables of enormous magnetic field strength that are rotating these magnetic fields in the three axes, you know, the XYZ axes Mm. of the ship, and they're creating an enormous magnetic torsion effect that could potentially have displaced that ship somehow to somewhere. We don't really know. Uh, in one version of the narrative, it actually shows up hundreds of miles away as the crow flies in the Philadelphia Navy Yard and uncloaks, so to speak, right in front of a British aircraft carrier captain of the Ark Royal that was <laughs> docked nearby and then disappears again. So it moves in space and and time according to one narrative. Now, you can buy that or not buy it, but I I do think simply from the standpoint of – Uh, of the experiment itself and the conceptualization behind it that it might have been possible that they did get more than they bargained for Mm. uh, and that the ship was displaced somehow and experienced some sort of hyperdimensional effect But, but where did the time come in? Well, the time element came in because the ship, if you believe that displacement theory that it shows up in the Philadelphia Navy Yard and then down in Norfolk, Virginia, and then back up (laughs) in the Philadelphia Navy Yard in a matter of minutes, uh, that would be your temporal displacement as well as a spatial displacement. Now, the interesting thing in the book that I talk about is that there was a researcher that appeared on Coast to Coast AM that had tried to dig into why there were no records of this experiment in the U.S. Navy. And what I uncovered and what he uncovered was that a lot of very interesting people appeared to have been connected with it. The Berlitz book on the Philadelphia experiment even connects Thomas Townsend Brown to the experiment. And no one has ever been able to verify that except this gentleman who did point out that Thomas Townsend Brown was working for the Navy and was working in radar at the time that the Philadelphia experiment took place. And, of course, Thomas Townsend Brown is the American physicist and engineer that was experimenting with electrogravitics. You know, mm. So this is a very significant figure to have involved in something like that. Now, the other interesting thing that this man discovered, and I have to give him high chops here, because what he discovered was that the Navy had literally hidden all of its logs about the Eldridge in the Coast Guard. Hmm. In other words, no one would expect to find information on a top-secret project like that in the Coast Guard and sent and therefore they didn't look for it there. But he actually found the logs of the Eldridge during the supposed time that the Philadelphia Experiment took place. And when he did so, he discovered that in actual reality, the experiment may have been performed at sea and in the Caribbean Ocean,
1: in the Caribbean Sea. So, and the Bermuda
0: Triangle? Yeah, that sort of thing. Mm. Now, interestingly enough... He in, a, in discovering this, he oddly corroborated Carlos Allende, who's a major figure in the Philadelphia Experiment story, because Allende is the guy that got a hold of Morris Jessup's book, The Case for the UFO, and annotated Jessup's book and sent Jessup a copy of his annotations of the book, and Jessup thought it was so bizarre that he took it to the U.S. Navy And the U.S. Navy thought it was also so bizarre that they printed up a special copy of Jessup's book with the annotations and contracted a private company in Garland, Texas, outside of Dallas, to do this in 1943, and printed up a limited number of copies of this book and disseminated it to people in the Pentagon. Hmm. Okay? Hmm. So, in other words, the Navy was certainly up to something, but Allende, in his notations, described this experiment to Jessup. And this is how the Philadelphia Experiment narrative actually breaks out into the public. Because Allende describes, number one, that, yes, the ship turned invisible and all you could see was the outline of the hull of the ship in the water. Wow. It still had uh, an energetic impression weight. Yes, it had a – yeah, precisely. And he describes this in such a manner that it had to have – the experiment had to have taken place at sea Mm -hmm. rather than in the Navy Yard according to the standard narrative. Well, I thought that was very interesting because this gentleman that unearthed the logs of the Eldridge in the Coast Guard Mm -hmm. (laughs) was – was able to determine that at the time that the experiment was performed, the Eldridge was, in fact, undergoing sea trials with Mm. quote-unquote new equipment. (laughs) (laughs) Very new. (laughs) Yeah, very new. (laughs) And and so it looks to me like we've had the first real real good indicator or, or corroborative argument that this thing actually took place. But the bottom line here is with the Philadelphia experiment, the reason that I found it so interesting is that yes, you're dealing with a magnetic torsion effect that's number 2 going to create a uh, a plasma ionization effect in and around the ship itself. Mm and that could account for some of these odd stories of displacement effects and you know crew members embedded in in bulkheads and there are other aspects of the story that are also interesting in that some of the crew members in some versions of the story after the experiment was performed went out to bars in the philadelphia area and then just suddenly spontaneously combusted into nothing yeah. <laughs> you know right in front of people's eyes no
1: that that would make sense because make sense, this yeah. is obviously influencing the atoms
0: right exactly exactly
1: and and when it's put back together it's it, because this was nothing like an exact science this was like right. just children with matchsticks right so Right. When it came back, it was all. Um, right. But but they must have been horrified. But on the other hand, they must have been besides themselves, uh, the national security state, the military complex, because this this was at the end of the war, wasn't it? Or Was it after uh, the war?
0: No, it was it was during the war. During. The the fell the Eldridge experiment took place in in 1943, so it was prior to D-Day. Wow. Uh, and if I remember correctly, it was even prior to the Allied uh, landings in Sicily, so it was right in that time frame.
1: So this must have given them. Oh, this must be like Hitler when he wanted the Wunder weapon out.
0: Yeah, the Wunderwaffe. You know, <clears throat> if if this happened, and I believe it did, and I believe it did more or less like the standard narrative says it did, it probably sent them into a panic. You know, oh my God, what have we discovered? Well, you've discovered yeah, hope. Yeah, you've discovered rotating torsion magnetic effects and plasmas and displacement. And what's that sound like? Well,
1: the bell. Exactly. But but my my point is, uh, you know, knowing how the military is thinking, they must have thought, wow, we can use, we can weaponize
0: this against the enemy. Sure, of course. It went deeply black, and that's why it was a stroke of genius to whoever came up with the idea of hiding the logs for the Eldridge in the Coast Guard. Yeah, (laughs) you know, not the Navy. (laughs) But do we see any trace? No one's going
1: to. No, no one's going to look there. But do we do we have any traces of them trying to apply it?
0: Yes, I mean during the war. No, during the war, I don't think that there are any evidences that the allies tried to apply it because i think the i think number 1 they weren't looking for what happened mm. and therefore they were trying to get a handle on it and before you know using it in in actual operational circumstances so i think it went deeply black and probably after the war is when you would look to see evidences of these things because yeah. of course Thomas Townsend Brown goes on to work for the navy goes on to work for Lockheed Martin and conducting his uh, electrogravitic experiments for the, for the navy and then subsequently in France and then back in this country so mm. yeah i do think something happened to the experiment when they realized that they had uh stumbled across something quite significant um with the Nazi bell, the, the difference there is that the Germans, in, in my reading and in, in attempt to reconstruct what they may have been up to, I think the Germans were looking more or less for what they actually found. Mm. Um, Project Kronos. You know, but, but I don't yeah. think they
1: realized the – yeah, they were looking – they knew more what they were looking for, but also they got – Something else, and what they bargained
0: for. Oh yeah, yeah. You had those scientists that just fell dead mm-hmm. the first time the thing was turned on, and so forth. Yeah, definitely. Mm. But th- at that point, they at least knew that they were on the right track. It's just now how. Kronos. The pro- <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> that's a hint. Yeah, yeah. Kronos <laughs> is a big hint. Good of time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting that if you look at these two experiments, Al, they are both in their way experiments in unification of of electricity and, and and magnetism because they both have more or less the same kind of conceptual basis: rotating fields, uh, massive torsion effects, particularly in the case of the Bell. Um, you, you've got basically the same principles operating just being applied rather differently in each case so you've you've got an interest on the on the allied side that i think is very unusual and i think explains why the united states in particular as i outline in the book tried to get their hands on some of those bell scientists after the war yeah everybody tried yeah that's also a clue that we didn't get that project Mm. because we were trying to get our are, are, are hands on some of the people involved with it. The only one that we got was actually Kurt Davis. Yeah. yeah. You
1: said in part one that science have to get to the transition zone between the different aspects of reality, uh, mm-hmm. metaphysics and physics. But it seems to me that these early experiments did precisely that. They, yeah, they did. did crack that, limi- uh, that border in a way. Um, yeah, they did. Yeah. I think so, yeah. And then it doesn't take much imagination to realize that if they have, it went black, and if they have succeeded in their experiments ever since, mm-hmm. God knows what they have come up with, but I'd say that a concept like anti-gravity would be peanuts in this mm-hmm. perspective. I mean, for what you can attain with this.
0: Yes, yes. Absolutely. I I definitely think that there was some American effort to grasp the the workings of these concepts in detail. And the reason why I think that, and you may have interviewed this guy, I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, but there's an American by the name of Mark McCandlish that has devoted a lot of research to the so-called alien reconstruction vehicle that appeared in – a secret U.S. Air Force research base out in California.
1: Hang on, let me do a uh, shout-out. We had on Michael Schrat, finally.
0: Yeah, Michael Schrat.
1: Yeah, that show folks are called This is the Classified Space Program. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing short of that. Yeah. We're going to have McAndlish on, but he talked about McAndlish there.
0: Yeah, yeah. This this is a very crucial thing because if you look at what McAndlish is describing in the alien reconstruction vehicle, he's describing essentially... The same type of physics concepts that were at work in the Philadelphia experiment and also at work in, in the Nazi Bell, rotating uh, electromagnetic fields and so on and so forth. So it's again the same the same type of thing that we keep stumbling across in, in this literature. And the way that McCandlish uh, presents his reconstruction, it's very clear that you're dealing with a kind of a Mark II version of that World War II technology. In other words, it's been pressed to new design limits and and so on. Mm. Precisely.
1: And, uh, yeah, we'll get back to the missing money and the classical space (laughs) program. I think that's tied in. But let's first uh, also touch upon the interesting terms in your other book, which you call the American Gold, Mm -hmm. the Soviet Mercury, and the Nazi Serum. Uh-huh. Okay. That's a big one to chew over, but could you give a taste of that?
0: Well, the the philosopher's stone, like I said, is uh, is about the research for exotic matter. And the American gold is the story of the monatomic gold that was discovered by an Arizona farmer by the name of David Hudson. And he discovered this stuff quite by accident. He had farmland that was so leached with heavy minerals in the soil that he had to literally bathe the soil in acid before he could, you know, raise any crops. And he, you know, some of that mineral deposit was in the form of gold. And as a result of bathing this stuff in acid, he found these little gold samples and he noticed something very peculiar that this gold would burn and literally sort of burn itself into a fine white powder that was clearly reminiscent of the white powder that was talked about in alchemical texts. But did he understand that reference or? He did later. He mm-hmm. did later. Okay. He found out about it later mm-hmm. when he started researching what the strange gold was, because he also noted that the chemical composition was still the same. It was still reacted like gold reacts. Mm-hmm. In, in compound. But the problem was it no longer had the mass of gold. In fact, it had lost, uh, I think about 47% of its mass. Hmm. And in researching further, he came across Hal Putoff and putoff made Putoff aware of uh, his discovery and Putoff sent him a paper saying that he had speculated about a two-dimensional superconductor at room temperature that would lose about 45% of its mass. So Hudson had found that his substances, this monatomic gold that had reduced itself in mass was basically the same sort of thing that Hal Putoff was describing. And on top of this, Hudson also discovered when he put this material on the scales to weigh the gold that the scales themselves lost some of their mass. Okay, wow. And then after this, he got in touch with General Electric, which we're back to Gabriel Crone there because who did Crone work for but General Electric? Uh, he got in touch with General Electric and found out that they had themselves noticed a similar phenomenon with uh, elements of the platinum group, like iridium and so on, that they were trying to tap into as an energy source. So that's the American gold. It's this very strange uh, way of organizing the chemical composition of heavy metals that results in a loss of mass. And Hudson speculated that this fine white powder – in fact, it was so fine, he speculated that what he was really dealing with were molecules of gold that simply would not interact with anything else, including other molecules of gold. Hmm. And the loss of mass, Puthoff explained that the mass wasn't lost. It was simply existent in a higher dimensional place. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. So in other words, this gold, this monatomic gold, is kind of uh, existing in two two dimensional states at the same time.
1: Wow. Okay. Would this be the purest form of gold we can
0: fathom? Yeah. Yeah. Because this this type of gold, gold burns, is is carbonized mm-hmm. at about eight thousand degrees Fahrenheit, which is immensely hot, of course, and th- it, when it does this, it reduces itself to this fine white powder, which, as I point out in the book, it goes all the way back to Moses, you know, taking the golden calf and burning it down and feeding the Israelites this manna, mm. which is a fine white gold.
1: Mm.
0: So it's, it's been there.
1: So, so it interact with organic. It must have an yeah. effect on vitality
0: yeah it does. it does it it actually, according to some people, attaches itself to the little microtubules on uh, the telomeres on on the genome mm. and improves the electrical conductivity of the telomeres. It improves mood and so on. and uh, as far as I know, that's true. you know, I tried some of it myself once just just to see if that was true. and it had a very peculiarly calming effect on my mood, but also, made me unusually alert mm. and clear thinking. Yeah, because you can buy it online, right? Yeah, you can buy some of this stuff online. It's It can be rather expensive, so take that.
1: But how, how do people produce it today? Obviously, uh, uh, you can't you know, it's a limit to how warm people can make things. If you do it right. too warm, then you'll have the national
0: security state on the door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, this is what happened to, eventually to Hudson. He yeah. just kind of was was hounded out of out of existence, and he doesn't really talk much about about that anymore. But for a while, it was all the it was all the talk. And yeah, the race. He yeah. Even appeared. Yeah, he even appeared on Coast to Coast AM at one point. Yeah. So yeah, you've got you've got a definite. Uh, in the story of the American gold, you've got a definite uh, black research projects interest in, in this type of substance, which, you know, again, given its mass loss properties, you can see why Yeah. and why they would have an interest in it.
1: Yeah, but how does it tie into nuclear physics?
0: Well, its tie into nuclear physics, as far as I can tell, and again, this is based on Hudson's speculations and, and Hal Putoff, its tie into nuclear physics is that it rearranges, it, and it's called orme, orbitally rearranged monatomic elements. So, but, uh, Hang on, is that uh, connected to ormus? Uh, not as far as I know. Oh, okay. But, but the key here is the orbitally rearranged, in other words, the electrons in the in the electron shells of, of the atoms are rearranged somehow we don't know exactly how mm-hmm. and then the key is the monatomic part because what that is trying to connote is that the molecule is reduced to an atom mm. which accounts for this very fine white powder state that he talks about uh, and in the process you're losing mass and in Hal Putoff's thinking this mass is actually still existent but it's in some sort of higher dimensional state coupled to that powder so it's it's a trans it's it's an element that's literally on that transition boundary mm. between a three space and an n space of whatever dimensions it may be in <clears throat> so you know you've got a clear interest there i think that is exhibited by people like put off and general electric and so on that this stuff is to be taken deeply black yeah yeah uh, deeply
1: black, and that's why it's called monatomic that that makes sense yeah. now. it's reduced to uh mono atom right. atom right and and anything to do with uh, atom manipulation is obviously also nuclear. T- yeah nuclear and, and also tied right. to anything with within the interest of the national security states right right they don't want us to go around yeah, exactly. <laughs> playing with atoms
0: yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly
1: so uh, what uh, about the soviet mercury
0: okay this is this to me is a really interesting story this is the red mercury story that began to appear in the 1990s and the narrative is that red mercury was a substance that the soviets had discovered in their nuclear research and it was a substance that was a liquid it was very heavy and it was kind of a cherry red or maroon red appearance in color. All right. Here I must,
1: I must put in something. In traditional alchemy, you have the concept of the white
0: powder yep. and the red. Yep. Yep. Precisely. This is why I put it in a book about alchemy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because there's a color sequence. If you read alchemical text, there's a color sequence that they all talk about that tells you when you've arrived at, at – the the, uh, the elixir or the philosopher's stone and interestingly enough, oftentimes that's a white powder mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, but anyway, this red mercury was also supposedly a substance that allowed you to create thermonuclear explosions without the need of an atomic bomb as the trigger for them uh. in other words, you would not get all of the nasty fallout that you have with an atomic bomb. Mm. you just get a big hydrogen bomb kind of explosion from this substance. And supposedly, according to the standard narrative again, this substance was produced by the Soviets, whatever it was, by placing it in reactors and bombarding it with neutrons. So in other words, it was a neutron-rich substance, which would account for its very heavy weight. And according to the standard narrative, of course, this substance was tr- was attempted to be sold on the black market to Muslim terrorists and what have you, and it was completely a fraudulent substance. It was a scam to round these people up. Hmm. The problem is there was one fellow that didn't buy that narrative, and his name was Dr. Sam Cohen, the American inventor of the neutron bomb. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And he thought that the substance was real. And more recently, you're going to love this, Al. More recently, I just posted an article, a blogged about it. The article is from 1993, which I didn't catch. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, the article is very interesting because the Soviets – or the Russians came out in 1993 and said that, well, this substance was a compound of lithium-6. Does that sound like Donald, Dr. Ronald Richter mm. territory? Mm. Ah, there we go. Mm. Because that's the substance that Richter specifically mentioned that he was using in his fusion experiments for Dr. Juan Peron. Mm. So anyway, I got to thinking about, all right, the Soviets have produced something we've got an American physicist that thinks this substance might be real and that it might be capable of producing some sort of fusion reaction and a tremendous explosion without the need for an atomic bomb to set it off. And so I got to thinking, well, what would be a heavy liquid goo that would be cherry red in appearance and very heavy? Well, possibly something of a compound of mercury. Mm. In an oxide form to account so for so literally mercury,
1: not just the metaphorical. Literally
0: mercury, hmm. yeah. It would be it would be mercury in a literal sense, possibly compounded with lithium somehow, and in an oxide form, it would appear kind of a, a reddish color. All right. But let me also say
1: before you go on, uh, mercury or quicksilver, as it's also known, has uh, popped up in so many strange places as you've pointed out in many of your books even back yes. to ancient times it's often yes. connected to anomalies precisely having to do with with time right and uh, i guess you can also say space in terms of yep. anti gravity and whatnot so yes. yeah mm
0: yeah it appears in vedic literature as mercury vortex plasmas i you know in my reconstruction of the bell i i believe that mercury was one of the compounds that mm-hmm. was used mm-hmm. uh and mercury certainly can be used as as a plasma inducing material under extreme stress electrical stress it will go into a plasma And that, of course, uh, it was Dr. Walter Gerlach that pointed out in in that article that I mentioned in SS Brotherhood of the Bell that in their German experiments with mercury lamps, mercury plasma, they had discovered minute traces of gold after these experiments. Mm. So in other words, somehow... That Mercury had done exactly what the alchemists always claimed it would do and transmute some of it into gold. Mm. And in that article, Gerlach – the article ran in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung in in 1927 – and in the article itself, Gerlach just comes right out and says, "Well, this looks like alchemy, and we should investigate this further." Mm. <laughs> you know? mm. So, in other words, we've got the typical scientist plea for a lot of government money. Let us let us go play with this a little bit more. And it stands to reason then that you know if if the Soviets are watching all of this, as they certainly would have been that they may have done their own kind of experiments, and that this red mercury may have been a a kind of material, plasma-inducing material that they were using, and it could very easily have been a material that under certain conditions of stress would have produced an enormous explosion, a kind of thermonuclear fusion reaction without an A-bomb.
1: With stress, are, are you referring to spinning, vibrating, heating?
0: Yeah, spinning, vibrating, heating, pulsing it with gobs of high voltage electricity and so on. Um, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Bingo. And you know, this is again exactly what we find with the Nazi bell, mm-hmm. which is why I was interested in this red mercury story, because when we turn to the serum that the Nazis used in the bells, the so called serum five twenty five, in Igor Vitkovsky's research, again, this is described as A heavy metallic goo that is kind of maroon or cherry red in appearance. And again, mercury is a is a logical choice, especially given the fact that Walter Gerlach is associated with the Bell Project, mm. and especially given the fact that it's Gerlach that wrote that little article in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung about mercury plasmas leaving little traces of gold, <laughs> you know, behind. Mm. So I think that we've got a dot there that indicates that we may be dealing with something real, not something fictional. So I began to explore what. This serum 525 might have been, and I came to the conclusion that it may have been some compound of mercury thorium oxide with thor- the thorium component being the 229 isomer. Now, why is that important? If you If you know what an isomer is, an isomer is a special kind of nuclear isotope where the nucleus of the atom is in a an extremely high rate of spin. Okay? Mm-hmm. And thorium-229 isomer is an unusual isomer in that its threshold of stability is very low. In other words, it doesn't take much to stop that spin. And when you stop the spin of an isomer, what does it do? It releases gobs of gamma rays. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's say now that we've got this mercury thorium 229 oxide as our serum 525. And we're putting this into the bell, which has those two counter rotating drums. And what are you doing when you spin up those drums? Well, the first thing you're doing is you're mechanically cohering the plane of rotation of that compound you're getting all of those little atoms spinning and rotating on the same plane of rotation. Mm-hmm. And then what else does the bell the bell project do? Well again, according to Vitkovsky, they're pulsing this with massive amounts of high-voltage direct current electricity. And that's going to vaporize the mercury. It's going to create a plasma. It's going to destabilize the thorium and release gobs of gamma rays, which is why I think the scientists died that were testing it the first time. Mm -hmm. And in addition to this, because thorium is a known isotope that has its own radioactive decay rates, any change in that rate of radioactive decay as the bell is being experimented with is going to indicate a temporal dilation effect. Hence Project Chronos. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And on Philadelphia. And Philadelphia, right. Exactly. So I think this serum was actually for a twofold purpose. It was the fuel for the device on the one hand to create all of that plasma bubble effect. And number two, it was also a way for them to gauge any temporal displacement effects that they may have been getting in that device. And Pace-Einstein, if you're playing around with gravity, you're also playing around with time. So I think, you know, once you connect all the dots, I think the dots are there and that it's an indicator that the Germans were experimenting with some very sophisticated ideas and probably the Soviets – uh, you know, watching all of this development, came to similar conclusions and tried to do it themselves. And the,
1: they the had history, you know, like Korsarov. Sure. So
0: yeah, exactly. And <laughs> the the Soviets, I think, may have basically been trying to duplicate that serum five twenty five. But the exception here that we have to point out again is this this article that appeared on RT where they admit that one of the substances in red mercury was lithium-6. Well, that's also an admission that the substance red mercury was real. Mm. So that's something that has to be considered. And when you recall that Richter is experimenting in his fusion experiments using lithium-6 mm. – uh, I think it's, it stands to reason that the Soviet version of this serum may have been lithium deuteride mercury compound of some sort. So, so you mentioned thorium,
1: and that's called mm-hmm. after the Norse god Thor. How fitting right. then that uh, one of our political parties called the Progressive Party, some years ago, they were arguing for let's, uh, because we we are banned in nuclear plants in this country. Mm-hmm. and uh, but they argued for let's build nuclear plants based on thorium because that's yes. more stable
0: yes yes there has been a, a whole literature if you if you explore it there's a whole literature out there about thorium based reactors and they are possible and they are very stable uh they're they're in a certain sense they're less dangerous than than uranium or plutonium exactly. by far yeah. Uh, And they would produce a similar output of power. And the other reason I should mention that one of the reasons I decided to look at thorium as a component for the Nazi serum Mm -hmm. was that one of the big mysteries from World War II is that the Nazis were stockpiling massive amounts of thorium, just massive amounts of thorium. And nobody at the time, really uh, could understand what were they doing this for. Mm. And my speculation is, number one, they may have been experimenting with the idea of thorium reactors, but number two, as I also argue in, in the Philosopher's Stone, it's my argument that the Nazis were using some early prototypical form of laser isotope enrichment. At, the, at that IG Farben plant in, in Auschwitz. Mm. And it's a very contextual case. People will have to read the book to see why I argue that. It's a kind of complicated... Which book was this? Uh, Philosopher's Stone. Mm. It's a complicated case, and people have to read why I argue the details that way. Uh, we'd be here all night if I were to try to yeah, reprise yeah, yeah, the yeah, argument. Yeah. But, but laser isotope enrichment is... Number one, the the physics for lasers existed at the time of World War II. It's always been a big mystery to physicists why lasers were not invented much earlier than they were. Well, I believe they were Mm. invented earlier, and it was part of the the Nazi isotope enrichment program. Mm. Laser isotope enrichment gives you enormously pure results. And it would be the perfect way, once they figured out the frequency at which thorium-229 isomer could be isolated from thorium stocks, it would be the perfect way to get enough of that isomer to use in that serum. And to do that, you would have to stockpile lots of thorium. Mm.
1: Uh, I think it's a tragedy that we never, because I remember Norwegian scientists looked into the stability of thorium and they confirmed that it theoretically was possible but they never it just went away the whole thing no politicians backed it anymore and I don't know it reminds me of the cold fusion thing Yes, you know it reaches the white market and then it goes away and
0: then it goes away
1: like someone is trying to censor this well
0: yeah and I think that's And and
1: by the way the reason of censoring it is not obviously because of accomplishing a thorium reactor or a cold fusion, it's probably because of other implications of messing around with this technology, right? Yes.
0: Yeah, that's my suspicion as well, because just like in Norway, in this country, we've had scientists for years that have been talking about the possibilities of thorium reactors. You've had, you know, scientists in France and Germany and Italy, basically everywhere on the planet, Mm. where you've got competent nuclear scientists, and, and they've been all saying, well, why don't we build a thorium reactor? And, again, I'm like you, Al, I suspect it's because there are things about that substance that are part of the Black Projects world, dating from possibly World War II, that certain people in the know don't want the rest of us to know. Mm. And it may it may be about this particular isomer of, of thorium, um, which, you know, again, it's a very low threshold of stability, it's very powerful, uh, and with a sudden release of energy – in a destabilization of that isomer, it could lead to very explosive results as attributed to the substance red mercury in the standard narrative.
1: Mm. But you know this story about... Um, oh, what's his name again? He's, he's getting a revival now. Uh, this guy who worked at Area 52... And uh,
0: f- uh, Area 51, Bob Lazar?
1: 51. Yeah, Lazar. He talked about... The element one one five. One one five, which is not thorium. No. Uh, And now, of of course, it's found. Uh, one one. Yeah, hundred and fifty. Moscovium. No. What's it called? Do you know? It's
0: the the name of the element is ununpentium. That's it. It's just the Latin for one one five. Um. The problem – I just talked about uh, the Lazar story in 115 last night with Dark Journalist, and it's it's important we go into this. Um, Lazar and then subsequently John Lear, in their story, at one point they maintained that they managed to take some portion of Element 115 out of the facility and stored it – at Lazar's home for a period of time about half an hour and my problem with that story Al, is that the transuranic elements, those, those elements beyond lawrencium, like 115, 114 116 and so on were always theorized by scientists to be elements that would be more stable in other words they would have longer half-lives than things like lawrencium or nobelium or things like that, that, and they would have to be synthesized. Hmm. The problem is that even then, the half-life of element 115 is very, very short. It's a matter of seconds. So in other words, getting a pile of the substance and holding it in your home for half an hour is impossible. Hmm. It's impossible. It's a detail of the story that's never made sense to me, unless they found some way to make it stable far beyond its, its natural half-life. And again, Lazar and Lear do not provide any details that would indicate that that was, was happening. So that part of the story has always sent my suspicion meter right into the red zone.
1: Yeah, but are they competent enough to, to give those kind of details?
0: Well, they. If, if they wanted to. Lazar claims to have studied physics at some point and ha- claims to have been in touch with Dr. Edward Teller. Mm. So you would think that he at least would be able to provide some kind of working sketch. ...of how that might be possible, yet he provides none. So I've been extremely suspicious of, the, of that whole story, okay. uh, just for that reason alone. Mm-hmm. Well, okay.
1: But um, well, he, but he was right in that, uh, but, but I mean, he's not the only one who has predicted that they will find further elements. In fact, there are oh, sure. some esoteric sources that says there's 144 elements.
0: Yeah, the, the, the recent versions, updated versions of the periodic table, I think, go out to element 150. And element 115 was acknowledged to have been synthesized at the plasma research facility in Darmstadt, Germany, uh, back in, what, 2003 or 4, sometime around then, um, if my memory serves me correctly. So the element has been synthesized. So it's no, you know, it's no longer just a gap in, in the periodic table. It's, they've they've measured half life and so on and so forth with it. So it has been made, mm. but again in very very small amounts and, and amounts that don't hang around for too long. <laughs> well, but, but at least it shows it's possible.
1: Oh sure, uh, yeah, yeah. Future will make it applicable, but Antonosa then. Why do NASA suddenly show an interest in this stuff? And like you say in the
0: book, with a little help from the Nazis. <laughs> why? Why did NASA show an interest in what exactly?
1: Well, in um, in the at least in the Philosopher's Stone, you one of your later uh, chapters ties NASA into this, and I'm I'm asking because oh yeah, I had the Heim theory, right? But I'm asking because. I'm convinced that this stuff is, I mean, one thing is free energy. Mm -hmm. But another thing is stuff like anti-gravity, time and space, move about. This all ties if eventually ties into the classified space program, right? But let's not go there. I'm I'm just asking if, uh, historically, uh, what's NASA's approach to all of this?
0: Well, when I wrote the book, I was not aware of certain things. That I subsequently became aware of So I'm going to kind of uh, Revise and extend my remarks here Okay NASA The first thing that we have to bear in mind Is that for any extended human presence In deep space Such as asteroid mining Or putting humans on Mars or whatever mm-hmm. This The bottom line is This cannot be efficiently nor even very safely done with chemical rockets. If we're going to go to the planets, we have to have a completely different propulsion system, one that would be highly energetic and could get us there relatively quickly, that it would be safer to operate and so on and so forth. It's just not feasible to do any of this stuff with... With chemical rockets, especially if we're thinking now as they're talking about asteroid mining, hmm. and we, they produce these cute pictures of rockets with big cups yeah. to scoop up, you know, <laughs> you know, all this, all this claptrap, yeah, this <laughs> cartoon nonsense, this claptrap. If people would stop and think, what is really being implied here? It implies that they know. Number one, they have to have a different technology, and if they're talking about it publicly, they probably already got some version of it. That they're using already. And we know that NASA has already used ion propulsion systems on satellite probes to the far planets in the solar system. So none of this is really all that off the books. That's number one. But number two, if you stop and look at what we've been talking about, particularly with these exotic materials like the monatomic gold or the Soviet red mercury or the German serum 525 and what have you, All of these things have one thing in common, and that is, number one, they are tremendously energetic materials. Number two, especially in the case of the monotonic gold stuff, we have claims of a mass loss, Mm. which would be ideally perfect for any anti-gravity propulsion system. So keep that in mind, and now let's go to why NASA would be interested in this stuff. Back in, I think, about 2008 to 2010, DARPA, that's the American Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or as I like to call it, the Diabolically Apocalyptic Research <laughs> yeah. Projects Agency. And that, that phrase was given to me by one of my website members. I didn't coin that. Um, it is, it, it is a, wonderful, it's a wonderful acronym. But anyway, DARPA came out with the announcement that it wanted the United States to be warp-capable within 100 years. Now, DARPA does not make pronouncements like that unless it thinks it's possible, number one, and number two, if they're working on it. Hmm. And at approximately the same time that this happened, a NASA scientist by the name of Dr. Harold White published a paper which was a reworking of the warp equation paper that the Mexican physicist Miguel Alcubierre published in the Journal of Physics back in the 1990s. And Alcubierre worked out the equations of field warp, of, of warp drive in that paper. So, in other words, we already have Star Trek being worked on with equations, okay? Mm-hmm. But in Alcubierre's version of this equation, the equation called for an energy requirement to produce a warp of that nature of the mass conversion to energy of something around the size of the planet Jupiter, (laughs) okay? In other words, way beyond any human capability for the foreseeable future. Well, Dr. White went through the paper and reworked the equations and discovered that, no, you did not need a mass conversion that huge to do it. You would only need a mass conversion several magnitudes smaller and small enough to put it within the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> as a result of Dr. White's reworking of al paper, NASA started a, an exotic propulsion project, and his part of that project is to look into the proof-of-concept experiments to make warp drive possible. Hmm. Let me repeat that. NASA tasked him and his crew to work on proof-of-concept experiments to decide and determine whether or not it's actually possible. It's happening now. It's happening now So when you put it all together It would stand to reason That NASA would be interested In any exotic substances That number one Were capable of producing Enormous amounts of energy Number two Doing so in such a way That wouldn't blow up everything Think monatomic gold mm-hmm. here And would do so At the energy requirement levels to make a warp drive bubble system possible. So, yeah, it's happening right now as I'm talking. There but but w- is
1: the idea here that uh, exotic substances like monatomic gold, uh, forms of uh, mercury or thorium or whatever, uh, that these substances have such a function that when they are applied in energy, they will open the doors to these other dimensions and provide us with this extra input of quote unquote free
0: energy. Yeah, I, I think that ha- I think that has to be part of their thinking at some point mm. because they know that the energy requirements, even even with White's reworking, are still going to be enormous, and that there's going yeah. to have therefore have to be some sort of exotic, yeah, some sort of hack, a mm-hmm. hack, mm-hmm. a re-engineering of, of materials that will produce this amount of energy. So they will turn over any stone that they can in their search for materials that can do that. Right. What's the Heim theory? Oh, boy. Burckhardt Heim. Oh, boy. Because that's connected to Norse's entrance into this. Oh, yes, it absolutely is. Burkhart <laughs> Burkhard Heim is, to me, one of the most mysterious figures in modern physics. He was a German physicist that at some point during World War II was involved in some sort of Nazi black projects research. We don't know exactly what. And And as a matter of fact, he was so highly thought of that Heidegger took him under his wing. Mm. Uh, he's a brilliant man and at some point during the course of the war while he was working on whatever it was that he was working on for them he suffered an explosion which literally blew off his hands and left him blind Jeez, yeah if you look at pictures of Burkhart Heim uh, in very few pictures you can see pictures of the stumps that were his hands and you can see the fact that he was blind. Mm. Well, Heim worked out after the war a theory, and it's called Heim theory, H E I M, worked out a theory of being able to predict the properties of particles from first principles. It's called Heim theory. And that theory involves things like hyperspaces and subspaces, and he even worked out his own special mathematical language that he called a selector calculus that, you know, is virtually impossible to find out anything about this because he deliberately published all of his work in German through an occult publisher in Vienna. (laughs) (laughs) Through <laughs> yeah. yeah, to keep you know, and his concern was he did not want this to go anywhere other than Germany and not be paid attention to by anybody but Germans. Mm, mm, okay? Mm. Uh he was he was at one point contacted after the war by none other than Dr. Werner von Braun. Mm. And if you look at Heim theory, Heim also is one of these people, like Sonny White and Miguel Al that number one was working on this theory because he knew that you could not go into deep space using chemical rockets. So he was trying to find a way to develop a, a theoretical framework. But, but hang on, he
1: wasn't involved in the in the among the Bell scientists, was he?
0: That I don't know. It, given the nature of his work after the war, he may have been one of them. He may have been. Mm. He may very well have been one of these scientists that suffered some sort of mm. uh, catastrophic accident when the bell was being tested.
1: Right, because this happened during the Nazi time.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So
1: then he may have been uh, taken out of that project.
0: Right, mm. right. Who knows? We, d- we simply don't know very much about him. Mm. Uh, after the war, he became an ardent pacifist. Mm. And he, he he would not interact with many very very many people at all. He had to teach his wife how to write, you know, tensor equations and calculus and so on. He had to teach his wife how to do that so that he could dictate to her what to write when he was dictating his books. Mm. Just to stop and think of that, what that poor woman went, went through, you know, <laughs> to learn all of that stuff but and not only that but his own invention of whatever the selector calculus is so i've been trying for years and years to get a hold of of the original books that he published so that i can find out but you know so far i've come up with a dead end but he but was, wasn't tied
1: to this natural genius in germany who who made um uh he made a ufo what was his Schauberger? name yeah, Schauberger. Schauberger. Schauberger? yeah Schauberger? yeah
0: as far as I know, no. Um, Schauberger is yet another interesting character in this stew, because again, you've got this—you've got this guy that's thinking totally outside of the box, <laughs> just totally outside of the box.
1: Yeah, both of them had their own kind of terminology or
0: yeah approach. Yeah, they did. But Heim is highly enough thought of that people have been invited to present papers on his theory at the American uh, Association of Engineers. So in other words, Heim is is definitely not a fly-by-night. It's just that nobody knows much about him because he was so very secretive. You can find out things online. You can go online and search for Heim theory and there's various papers. They're very technical and very complex. But he is there and he did work that would plug into this whole warp drive uh, phenomenon, high energy materials phenomenon quite well.
1: And you think that the European Space Agency and the Narsan Air Force uh, used some of his work in their anti-gravity experiments?
0: I have no doubt hmm. that they did, hmm. although you will not find any of them admitting it. No, no. But uh, the European Space Agency especially, you know, since the headquarters is in Germany, it, it stands to reason mm. that they're not going to – you know the Germans. They're not going to leave any, any stone, stone unturned. No, no. So it uh, stands to reason that they would. And by the same token, the American interest in, in his work ultimately is coming from NASA Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of these engineering conferences where people present papers on his theories have been sponsored by sponsored by NASA. So, mm. you know, uh, he's an unusual fellow. Not much is known about him, but he's, to my mind, he's he's a crucial part of this story, just like Gabriel Kron.
1: Mm. Okay, uh, can you see in history examples, maybe all the way back to Tesla, of inventors who has come up with uh, devices that can harvest the so-called
0: free or zero-point energy. Oh, yeah, all, all over the
1: place. All over the place. Yeah, Could you give us some examples?
0: Well, you mentioned one earlier, John Worrell Keeley. Mm. Uh, Keeley was this quirky 19th century steampunk yeah. <laughs> American, American inventor that pro- produced these bizarre machines just you can go online and look at some of these things there's pictures of them it's just bizarre mm. but he was fascinated by by music by acoustics and so on and so forth and he, like many inventors he claimed that he had to tune his his inventions and that they would only function if he did so and that had You know, people denounced him as being a fraud for precisely that reason, because no one else could get his inventions to work. But let's turn to another inventor by the name of Royal Raymond Rife. Oh, oh, he, Keely and Rife, weren't they both involved in
1: these machines that people are using? Because I know about the Rife machine. I know someone who has that one. But that's for healing themselves or something. I'm not sure. Well,
0: well, Rife... The actual story of Dr. Reif was that he, number one, believed that cancer was a viral phenomenon. And number two, he believed that, that you could cure or heal almost any disease by the use of proper resonant frequencies. Mm. If you just knew the frequency of the disease. Mm. So he invented – he claimed to have invented a microscope that would allow him to see viruses – in their living state and that's key because you can view a virus of course under an electron microscope but the, the electron microscope kills the virus so um. you cannot you cannot get any living uh, experiment with the virus especially of the type of, that he was doing with resonance but the problem is he claimed to be have invented a microscope that could see ...the virus optically. And he also claimed that this microscope had to be tuned in order to see the virus. And that he himself personally had to do it. And he began to cure people of cancers with his his resonance frequency treatments. And of Mm. course, big pharma can't have that. So they shut the guy down. They took his microscope... And threw him into prison. Hmm. Like, again, they
1: with, uh, like they did with like did with uh, Reich and the like organ. they
0: did with Wilhelm Reich. Hmm. And in in Reich's case, you've got the same thing that Keeley claimed, and this is the idea of tuning the machine. And ever since then, there, since these two inventors, it doesn't take much research. You find other people that claim that they have achieved some sort of machine that gives a coefficient of performance that's over unity that has to be tuned, okay? The, mm. these, these inventions are all over the place. And for that reason, most scientists denounce these things as fraud. For what reason? For the reason that they have to be tuned. Why would that be a problem? That they can, because no one else can duplicate the results. Right. Okay? Mm. Now, here's the problem. And Tom Bearden was the one that pointed this out. And I think he's right. I think his speculation here is spot on. Bearden points out that every living thing, as you said, has its resonance. But for Bearden, that resonance is its scalar potential. It's a field that is set up in a zero-sum field by any living entity. And that field is what tunes those machines. So in other words, he thinks that these scientists stumbled on this whole area of physics, of the, of the information field that tunes things in the presence of individuals. So, so we influence it. Yes. Yes, we make them work.
1: Mm. Right. Yeah. That's that's back to quantum physics.
0: That's right. Yes, in, in, in a very weird way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is. So I, you know, I don't dismiss these strange stories entirely out of hand. And Bearden even goes further. Bearden Bearden maintains that because Rife was doing his tuning with his microscope and claiming to be able to see viruses optically. Which of course, by standard optical physics, is impossible. Mm-hmm. What Bearden maintains is that Rife actually, unknown to unknown even to himself, was that Rife managed to create a microscope which could see into the quantum phase state of the of the virus. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So you've got all of these strange inventions. There's so many of them out there, Al, where you've got this idea of somehow this device has to be tuned, whatever the device is. Mm. And in every single case, it comes back to this idea of an individual's resonant field. And it's very interesting that Dr. Tiller, who I mentioned in the first part of our interview, that Dr. Tiller discovered the same thing in his experiments. He discovered this, this information field that can linger on long after the persons who set it up have disappeared, and that that field can even be transferred to wow. objects. Yeah. Like an echo, energetic like an, imprint. Like an echo, like an amulet.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And since we're talking about intention, like a sacrament.
1: Mm. Yeah. Suddenly we bring this out of superstition and into practical mm-hmm. reality. Now,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I point out – I did a webinar for any of your listeners that are interested in the members area of my website on Dr. Tiller, and I point out that what Dr. Tiller is in effect done is he's taken that old teaching about sacraments, having to have the proper form, proper matter, and proper intention,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and converted it into a generalized template of action, of – consciousness of mind, of intention as a field of information on matter.
1: You know, often they say, and, and I'm taking this to a completely outlandish uh, field here, but mm-hmm. but it, it's a parallel. Often they say when it comes to ghosts, people have been traumatized right. in their death. Right. And so it's like an astral explosion or whatever. So maybe mm-hmm. their consciousness, their emotions, their vitality, whatever, is because of this incident is imprinted on this space, mm-hmm. this area, mm-hmm. uh, and so you have this uh, residue. Yeah, in the same way. It's,
0: yeah, it's part of Called the. Ghost. Yeah, it's it's part of the esoteric lore in any number of fashions. Es- you know, ghosts, amulets, and so on. Mm. Uh, and so on, and I even voodoo. I would say even voodoo. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 an all pervasive concept. And in the in the book Microcosm and Medium, I examine that whole thing in terms of the Soviet psychotronic research and the Czech psychotronic research during the Cold War of these physical objects that were imprinted with specific intentionality. Mm. Uh, which, going back to the Baroque era, it's another it's another manifestation really in a different fashion of effect in Lera, because that Baroque music is heavily, heavily imprinted with very specific explicit intentionality. If you know how to listen to it and what mm. to listen for mm. um, it's, it's very heavily imprinted with it. So again, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at a paradigm that is now kind of breaking out into the open across so many different fields of endeavor that, uh, I don't think you can put it back into the box. I, I don't think it's possible.
1: So, so Keely did on a cellular, or maybe molecule, or maybe even atomic level what this Baroque music does on an auditory level.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think mm. so. If you look at if you look at his strange devices, they're almost always at some point they're almost always of a musical nature. Mm. Almost always. Yeah. Very strange stuff, too. I mean, you look at this stuff, and for one thing, Al, Keeley's devices required such an immense amount of very precise machining that it boggles my mind to think that this guy is going through all this effort just to create frauds or unusual-looking machinery. Mm. Because and
1: just- he was a contemporary of Tesla or was he a predecessor of Tesla?
0: Oh, he was a, he was more or less a contemporary, late late nineteenth century, golden age, huh, of science. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the golden age of steampunk science. Yeah, mm. yeah. Hmm. And that's you know, I use the word steampunk because that's what his that's what his devices look like. Yeah, <laughs> quite literally, you know,
1: it's, <laughs> many of it's those, those guys had devices of that nature. Yeah, because there were other people back then too who who did breakthrough um, stuff.
0: Right, right. Right,
1: And Hoagland, he's now saying uh, that, well, it's not that he's saying it, but he, he's reported a fact, namely that there is a you big, because you talked about, actually, let's start in another end. In the moon program, mm-hmm. Hoagland pointed out that Von Braun and those guys actually had a non-rocket fuel uh, kind of parallel program, if you like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. in order to achieve these things. You've mentioned it in, in your own books. Mm-hmm. Uh, a brief take on that, because that, that shows you already in the 60s they had developed what they... You know, in, in the timeline here, we see these old guys, they are mm-hmm. stumbling into stuff. Mm-hmm. Then during the war, the state involves itself feverishly mm-hmm. to try to apply this, militarize this. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, come the 60s, they have... I mean... Kennedy would never say we're gonna to go to the moon in nine ten years if he didn't already know right I think it was a part of him trying to make this white yeah
0: oh, I definitely think so So
1: okay I'll give you i give you a decade to kind of transition this thing so right so if Hoagland is
0: correct uh, what was going on there well Hoagland's take on it begins with the launch of the uh, what was it, the Vanguard satellite, I believe it was, when the the U.S. Navy put up its first satellite. And the, they were trying to track the satellite after they had successfully launched it, and they couldn't find it. And they were perplexed until they discovered that the satellite was in orbit 600 miles further away from the Earth than they had projected it to be. Hmm. And so von Braun contacted a French physicist. I forget what his name was. And this was also the trip that that von Braun talked to Burkhard Heim. Hmm. And they discovered that they had rotated the rocket, and that's why the rocket went a lot further, and that they had discovered the principle of of rotation and and torsion, (coughs) which to me (coughs) – makes some sense but not really because you know you can ask any artilleryman what the effect of rifling projectiles did it made projectiles fly farther and more accurately <laughs> okay? okay just by spinning them in the, in the in the barrel of the of the cannon mm-hmm. so in other words the principle was known it just wasn't it just wasn't tied into the idea that this would work in vacuum mm. okay mm. so that's when, that's when they make the discovery. Now, my version of this and what NASA was up to is based on a little bit on the so-called Apollo hoaxer business. Because when I was a boy, I was you know glued to the television set watching the moon landings. And there was that, I believe it was Apollo 16 or 17, that they broadcast the liftoff from the moon of the lunar excursion module. And I was I was laying on the living room floor watching the television and I watched the lunar excursion modules just kind of pop up and fly away. And I turned around and I said to my dad, I said rockets don't do that Because, you know, a rocket accelerates geometrically per unit of time. It starts out slow, and it gets faster, and then faster, and so on. Mm. But no, what you see on the television thing is that the lunar excursion module just pops up and flies away at a more or less uniform velocity. Mm. And I thought, okay, we're either watching a very bad movie production, or we're watching an alternative technology that's not a rocket. Mm. And I suspect the latter because, number one, who's the senior flight administrator of the Apollo program at Cape Canaveral? Well, it's Dr. Kurt Davis. Dr. Kurt Davis is what? A bell Bell scientist. scientist, yeah, And he's not a rocket scientist. (laughs) So what's he doing managing Apollo? That's number one. Number two, we have the problem that Von Braun, when he, after the moon landings, Were successful and happened Von Braun gave a little interview To Time Magazine where he disclosed That the neutral point of gravity Between the Earth and the Moon was about 23,500 miles from the surface of the Moon Which If you stop and think about it What Von Braun has just said Is that the Moon is a lot more massive Than we thought (laughs) Mm. Okay. And shortly afterwards He was retired of course from NASA And then he went to work for Fairchild Industries And I suspect that he he may have done that deliberately you know, in order to show people that, hey, rockets may have got us there, but they didn't get us off of there. Mm. <laughs> okay? And my scenario, my speculation is, is that NASA made the dirty deal with the Nazis to get their hands on some of that technology and use it to get us to the moon and possibly back from the moon. That's what I
1: Yeah because because if they had the technology why put your eggs in a rocket basket when you don't have to Right. That's ludicrous. And I think right. uh, Hoagland argues passionately for uh, that they did uh, well they did use a rocket for for what you call it in English dog and pony show but that they yeah. really had a parallel already from the beginning to get there. Yeah.
0: That's that's my that's my that's my supposition as well and that that the presence of Kurt Davis in the center of this pie is to be indicative that this may have been the case, and for yet another reason. Because shortly before Kurt Davis retired from NASA in, I think, 85 or 86, he was put in charge of, guess what? He was put in charge of NASA's UFO files. I didn't even know NASA had uh, uh-huh. o- officially that. Uh-huh, yep. Hmm it was davis that was in charge of that mm. yeah so uh, the way i the way i'm connecting dots is is that to my mind every indicator is that they had some sort of alternative technology that they were using once they were out there after the rocket dog and pony show was over <laughs> <laughs> and now finally the,
1: and some now of fight. it
0: yeah some of it has has started to go
1: white because Hogan yeah. told me when i had him on that and he's saying he's building his own gizmo for this that they have uh, but i i forgot the verb but you probably know what it is it's a new technology that makes uh, hoagland is building a drone based on this i think Mm -hmm. he says you can build your own drone based on this technology to get anywhere do you know what it's called
0: well, there's lots of things that he may have in mind. I don't know exactly what it may be. It may be this electromagnetic drive thing that people yeah, have been talking it. about. Yeah, that's The
1: drive, the, the EM drive, it's basically
0: yeah, called. the EM drive, yeah. yeah. Um, NASA did successfully test that in space, and it did produce some thrust. The Chinese have tested it, and it's produced thrust for them. So, yeah, yeah. Um, the really interesting thing is when you look at what they're talking about with this EM drive and then go back and look at the 1950s research that Paul LaViolette uncovered in his Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion book, which is a book I highly recommend people read and get. I'm going to have Dr. LaViolette on for that. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he points out that they were talking in the 1950s about using microwave soliton effect, you know, to achieve lift and so on, and that they actually achieved quite a bit of thrust with this. So, you know, the EM drive is kind of a, a – a aw- What is
1: the technology behind it?
0: Well, it's basically the What's same. What's the principle? It's basically the same thing. You're just using concentrated microwaves to achieve thrust, just like the EM drive. So when you compare what La Violette is talking about that they were thinking about in the 1950s and in, in, that he describes in his book, and then you look at this EM drive that they're talking about today, the EM drive is kind of like the Walmart children's toy version of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why they are declassifying that, because yeah. it's so
1: simple compared to what they really yeah. got. Yeah, I think so. But, but wouldn't the implications even if it's a toy version, wouldn't it be too risky to to let it out there if anyone can replicate and use it?
0: Well, yeah, in, in a certain sense, it would. Um, if you look at the microwave soliton effect, it's such extraordinarily concentrated high-power microwaves that they're talking about that you would literally crisp anything underneath it. Um, and, you know, that's… If you make an EM drive large enough, you know, that's the problem that you would have. Mm. And microwave microwave engineers will tell you this when they work on microwave towers, that, you know, you don't want to be in front of those things. So, you know, it's, it's all there. And every indication to my mind is that what they have is much more sophisticated than what they're talking about publicly. It's just the way that they can get people accustomed to it.
1: Yeah, and and uh, what about five G and all this stuff? I mean, I got <laughs> I got ill from a so called smart meter. Oh, I can believe it. Yeah. Which had a microwave um, a yeah. principle. In fact, one scientist told me it's it's like that meter is like having ten open microwaves beaming you yeah. all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's interestingly enough, uh, it's slowly getting some. Opposition traction in this country because there has just recently been a Harvard physicist in this country that's come out and said this this is just a health health nightmare, um, and it is. But but for some reason they're rolling out that kind of technology all over the place. Yeah, you well, know, they want their Internet of Things. Number one, they want to keep the profits rolling in, and number two, uh, I quite frankly think that these people are just. Pure evil. When it comes right down to it, they just want to get rid of a bunch of useless eaters and make a lot of money from us in the process. It's, it's the same. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, that's a pretty cynical. So, so not ignorance, but actually destruction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it is cynical, and that's yeah. what they are. They're very cynical people.
1: Yeah, but then again, they are also ignorant people.
0: Uh, it's, oh yeah.
1: Today, it's like they have uh, compartmentalized everything. So, you know, you just have geeks working on details. And then you have some kind of project coordinators who don't have to be scientists. They just want to accomplish certain things and they're calling the shots. And if anyone is evil, it should be those who have some kind of survey of what's going on. But then again, they are not scientists, so they may not even be aware of the destructive or they don't want to know about the destructive aspects of it. So you have this complete Evil machine, where every bit of the machine are innocent, but the totality becomes like diabolic. If you see what I mean?
0: Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's possible too. Yeah, Mm. sure. Yeah, the compartmentalization is so out of control that nobody really knows, you know, what this whole system is going to do once it's put together. Mm. And that's that's the other problem. And and the madness of it is that they simultaneously
1: develop AI. Yep. who can hij- hijack everything and yep. become, like, the uh, the leader of... of uh, What's that old movie, Dr. The Mad Evil Doctor, Scientist?
0: Dr. Strangelove.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the AI becomes the Dr. Strangelove, <laughs> because no, no human is in, in control of these things anymore.
0: Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, well I do know, you know, I've, I've been railing, I have been railing uh, along with Catherine Fitz about... These the the computerized algorithmic high frequency trading that's done on stock markets and commodities markets and so on, you know that means that markets are no longer genuinely reflective of human trading activity. Mm. Mm. And, you know, that's bad any mm. way you slice it because you're not getting a clear picture of price and risk and things like that. So yeah. No, it becomes very esoteric is yeah yeah it's just you know it's just all nuts mm. uh i'm all for going back to the good old days of wall street where people are on the trading floor shouting and screaming at each other and waving <laughs> you know waving yeah. papers around because at least you're dealing with a human activity that's yeah. representative of human economic activity
1: yeah that's right but but finally the missing money um, <laughs> right uh Do you think, to what degree does this technology involve, because is it very expensive? I mean, an EM drive is is cheap. What is so expensive? Is it, it's not the technology, is it just the manufacturing, the mass manufacturing of crafts and machines that's based on this technology? Is it the security? Where is, what's all the money going for, do you think, in your speculation?
0: Well, I think it's the technology. Let me give you an example of why I think that. And let's go back to Mark McCandlish and his alien reconstruction vehicle. In his talks about it, he he states that one of the things that made this vehicle go were large, artificially grown quartz crystals that had to be absolutely flawless in their lattice structure And these things, Al, are up to eight feet wide and about one to two feet thick. Now, if you can imagine growing a quartz crystal that large, that's enormously expensive Mm. just for one of those things, not to mention creating an entire circular disk of these things.
1: Uh, And these things can be grown anywhere?
0: Well, in my opinion, they would have to, if you're going to get a, a lattice-free structure, you're going to have to do that in as near zero gravity. In other words, in outer space as you can. Ah. So that adds to the expense right there. Yeah. Not just to mention a quartz crystal that huge is going to be massively valuable and massively expensive. Mm. Uh, and then to get it back down here, you know, to put it in your disk. Uh, so... Just from that standpoint alone, let's look at serum 525, the Nazi stuff. You know, uh, mercury is enormously expensive, especially if you're putting enough mercury into a gigantic, you know, 15 foot tall thing, mm. and doping it with thorium 229 isotope, which is also enormously expensive to to fabricate. So yeah, all of this stuff at every turn looks to me to be enormously expensive. Then on top of that. You have to create not only the infrastructure to produce it You have to create the infrastructure to maintain it You have to train the people to make it You have to train the people to maintain it So that's added Security Security, right That's at, All of this is added expense And on top of this, Al Let's let's look at what the U.S. government just did With its financial auditing control regulations With the FASB-56 regulations because, in effect, the federal government now has said that any aspect of federal finances that involve national security do not have to be disclosed. In effect, what that yeah. regulation just did is it's taken the entire federal budget black.
1: Yep. Uh, Fitz mentioned it when we had her own for the black economy. Yeah. In fact, yeah. it, it may be due to her and Dr. Skidmore's push. That yeah. this happened.
0: <laughs> yeah, it may <laughs>
1: inadvertently yeah. that.
0: No, I, I, I can tell you that privately she's expressed that that thought, and and I've I've had a similar thought that it may have been precisely that 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 created this. Uh, in other words, that entire hidden system of finance just took over everything. Mm. And again, it's because all of this stuff is enormously expensive. Not to mention, you know, let's say. Dr. White is at NASA is successful in his experiments, and they decide to build a warp drive. Hmm. Imagine the expense that that's going to be. Hmm. It's going to be enormously, enormously costly. So I think we're looking at we're looking at something that is such a drain on the public economy. And the elites are in this hell-bent-for-leather push to, you know, get out there into space and start mining asteroids and Mm. get off this planet for whatever reason. And, you know, all of this is going to be enormously expensive. And I think you're looking at a hidden aspect here of of the build-out of 5G and everything else because they're trying to move everything Including financial clearing, including accounting, including record-keeping, data-keeping. They're trying to move all of this into space, which I think is a huge, huge danger.
1: Mm. If some sort of catastrophe was to occur on Earth… Let's say a well, pole, pole shift or whatever. Yeah, they, they
0: might be doing it for that reason. But
1: um, but imagine imagine an aftermath of that. Uh, those oh, yeah. survivors would be would be stone age people, and then mm-hmm. they would have their parallel civilization, and at some point descend upon us and take over whatever was left mm-hmm. <laughs> as gods, basically.
0: Enter mm-hmm. the gods.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> history you know. might be repeating itself, huh?
0: Well, you know, I've said I've said many times that I I think that they're using all of all of this stuff as a kind of template for their for their plans and for their actions. Absolutely.
1: Because mm. many people think the the missing money, the fifty trillion or whatever it's up to, it's probably more than that too. Oh, that, and that's just that's just what they're draining from the white. What about what's going on in the black? Right. But anyway, they think it's like a break, a literal breakaway civilization, like. They have a high-tech basis on the moon, or Mars, or whatever. Right. And everybody realizes that's going to be expensive. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but even even in a mundane, earthbound uh, system, it would uh, be so expensive that that could account for all all, all the money too. Just yep. just having it here on Earth.
0: Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And let's remember, I pointed this out in uh, 2014 at the Secret Space Program conference, let's remember that they have evaluated some asteroids out there as possessing resources in the quadrillions of dollars, okay, mm-hmm. and interestingly enough, the amount of toxic derivatives in the global financial system have been estimated to be between 14 and 17 quadrillion dollars. In other words, Jesus. orders, yes, orders of magnitude more than the entire gross domestic product of the planet. Uh, and not just f- for a year, but right. for for how long, for as long as we can count? Or? Right, right, yeah. right. So, it's not for nothing they're talking about going out and mining asteroids. That's how they clear all the talks. Yeah, there you go.
1: But isn't that a good thing? Uh, Wouldn't that kind of make the economy healthier?
0: Well, maybe, but the problem is… I don't trust them to want to do that. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, that's number one. (laughs) Yeah, number one. And number two is what would happen if they did go out and snag those asteroids and bring all that money back here and do it without much regard to its effect. Oh, they would just boost double their yeah. Yeah. power, the grip. Yeah. Well, it's like I pointed out. It's it's interesting because what they did, in my my opinion, with this hidden system of finance was they collateralized space at a very early time. Mm. And now we're just fixing to go out there and get it. You know, we've got the bankers on the on the Venetian interplanetary Rialto <laughs> wanting their cut of the action, and that's exactly what's going on.
1: And always to the detriment of the ordinary people. Yep. Yeah. No wonder they want to smack down all sorts of political upheaval uh-huh. that's going on on the planet. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all need to get yellow Wests. That's my <laughs> solution.
0: No argument for me. <laughs> Come on, Macron. Yeah, oh a, my God! What a little twit of a popinjay! Yeah. To to show up at the Verdun Memorial and tell people there's no such thing as French culture, surrounded by the graves of thousands of Frenchmen that were fighting for precisely that. <laughs>
1: exactly. And in the same breath, he yeah. he he claims that oh Venezuela they're suppressing their own people. Oh they're. Oh. Mm. And what? Does, and while he does that, his police <laughs> are smacking down. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, in Venezuela, the so-called opposition is allowed. To even call for coups yeah. without being seized. <laughs> Whereas in France, ordinary people can't even protest the suppression yeah. without being smacked down. Yep. That's your schizophrenic political yep. scene we have.
0: Hmm. Well, I like to remember certain episodes in French history where we had previous leaders with little regard to average Frenchmen. They seemed to... <laughs> <laughs> suddenly been missing a head or two you
1: know <laughs> yeah this is this is his own show we should do a political show too uh, uh, at some point soon uh, about France <laughs> well we, we don't have to limit ourselves to France but it, it, it's quite a cartoon of, of what's going on
0: oh it's ridiculous I mean yeah. it, it, it just is unbelievable. Mm. It's just unbelievable.
1: But but you know that's Pandora's books you're you're peeking into <laughs> there. Uh, let's leave it for now. We'll never uh, yeah. finish then. I think we have it now. Okay. We've uh, we've been going for what uh, four hours okay. I think. So yeah. it's going to be a classic.
0: All right. Well, thanks, thanks for, for having me back, back on. And
1: many, and many thanks, thanks for coming back on.
0: Back on. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks, thanks for today. today. Thanks, thanks a lot. Alan. Alan. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.
1: thus far today. If you check in in the near future, you'll see we have a similar program coming up. Uh, I should say similar themed, as I've talked with Walt Thornhill on the Electrical Universe. But um, As for today, this is one of our first attempts to delve into the matter of exotic science. We have promised you for a long time that this is a subject matter we'll pursue, and we will with different people in the future. So it's just that we can't do everything at once, but it will come, and at least we've started now, and I will give you some Excellent quotes from uh, some of my favorite scientists of the old school. In other words, real scientists. Now, if you feel our shows are worthy, let me remind you how you best can support them. And that is by sharing them. See, every time you do, on any social media platform or on the web, so not only YouTube... The algorithm notices and promotes it accordingly across YouTube. In addition, we reach more people that way via your network, which is very important now that they are strangling independent media to facilitate the corporate takeover of YouTube. Just take a look at the right side of this video, and you'll see half of them are mainstream channels. It used to be mostly our wids, or related stuff from independent creators. But I guess it's no secret anymore that YouTube has been taken over by the multinational corporations behind Google who are conglomerated with the same mainstream media that they are now pushing onto YouTube in order for them to avoid retiring, seeing as the old stream platforms are collapsing day by day. So you ought not just support independent media, you ought also not engage with the mainstream channels on YouTube, lest you actually reward this coup. So the only way left for channels like us to grow is for our listeners to get their hands dirty and lift together. Sure, donations are golden. But if you can't afford it, or if you don't have a card or other means to donate, or if you're simply too cheap, then know that sharing is silver. And do check that you get noticed of our new shows, and stay subscribed. Not only are they force subscribing people to the mainstream channels, but they're also unsubscribing them from independent channels. Last time I checked, we've lost 8000 subscribers. This isn't a problem on the podcast platforms, obviously, and we've expanded to them lately. So perhaps you're listening to this on one of those where you'll notice we pre-release many shows from time to time to give you an extra incentive tuning into to us via the podcast platform. We have to get our numbers up other places, because YouTube isn't safe anymore. Eventually, we'll probably just be shut down. So, we're looking into expanding to other places too, like Minds.com. Now, this video will probably be demonetized for no good reason, obviously. But now, they don't even pretend that we have violated any of the ad-friendly policies nowadays is just automatic. If you're independent, that is your crime. Now to the quotes. And uh, I want to start with... And oh, by the way, all of these guys were basically operating in the 1800s or some of them into the early 1900s. But they were far ahead of the day still ahead of us today. At least our white side. Now the black science is a completely different matter of course. But the black science wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for these pioneers and what they discovered. Let's start with Michael Faraday. Great man. But despite being an extraordinary experimentalist inventor and thinker, he was also or maybe because of that he was a very pious spiritual person. He said the book of nature which we have to read is written by the finger of God. Nature is our kindest friend and best critic in experimental science if we only allow her intimations to fall unbiased to our minds. Another Genius, which we mentioned in the show today, is John Ernst Worrell-Keeley. And he said, There is a celestial mind force, a great sympathetic force, which is life itself, of which everything is composed. Matter is capable of infinite subdivision. All matter is in a state of perpetual activity, that is, motion... Whether the substance under consideration be inanimate or animated, visible or invisible, there is no dividing of matter and force into two distinct terms, as they both are one. Force is liberated matter. Matter is force in bondage. Victor Schauberger, which we unfortunately haven't covered too much in any of our shows, but we've name-dropped him a few times, but we, uh, I think we will get back to him in the future. He said, "...more energy is encapsulated in every drop of good spring water than an average-sized power station is presently able to produce." What was true then is still true today. And he said, you must learn to think one octave higher. Only then will you learn how implosion energy works. The technique that only uses explosion or expansion forces is lethal and hostile to the nature. This kind of technique must miss the natural counterforce or the organic synthesis, which is a negative form of quality. That organic vacuum that reunites the polar and the increasing to the favor of the uprising of a new life form. Implosion is no invention in the conventional sense, but rather the renaissance of ancient knowledge lost over the course of time. And, he said, you must look at the processes of motion in the macrocosmos and microcosmos accurately and copy them. Spoken like a true alchemist. Walter Russell. Another brilliant fellow. And we're soon going to have a show on him actually. Said. Your body is merely a machine. Made to express the thoughts that flow through you and nothing more. It is but an instrument for you to express your imagings. Imagings? I don't know if this is supposed to be say images or imaginations, but both are probably both applies. It is built an instrument for you to express your imaginings, just as a piano is an instrument for a musician to express his imaginings. Just as the piano is not the musician, so likewise your body is not you. Tesla said Alpha waves in the human brain are between six and eight Hertz. The wave frequency of the human cavity resonates between 6 and 8 hertz. All biological systems operate in the same frequency range. The human brain's alpha waves function in this range, and the electrical resonance of the earth is between 6 and 8 hertz. Thus, our entire biological system, the brain and the earth itself, work on the same frequencies. If we can control that resonant system electronically, we can directly control the entire mental system of humankind. He also said, My brain is only a receiver. In the universe there is a core from which we obtain knowledge, strength and inspiration. I have not penetrated into the secrets of this core but I know that it exists. Interestingly, he said, if you only knew the magnificence of the three, six, and nine, then you would have the key to the universe. And finally, Tesla also said, if you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and energy vibration that's it for today as always thanks for following us i've been your host thanks to you and my team until next time be seeing you
0: Number one.